1: Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm welcoming Irene O'Garden. Irene's won or been nominated for prizes in nearly every writing category, from stage to e-screen hardcovers, as well as literary, literary magazines and anthologies. Her critically acclaimed play, Women on Fire, played sold-out houses at Off-Broadway's Cherry Lane Theatre and was nominated for a Lucille Lortel Award. She won a Pushcart Prize for her lyric essay, Glad to be Human, which is included in her new book of essays by that name, just published May 2020 by Mango. Harper published her first memoir, Fat Girl, her second, Risking the Rapids, How My Wilderness Journey Healed My Childhood, was published by Mango last January. Fulcrum, published in 2017 by Narala, is her first poetry collection. Her poems and essays have been featured in dozens of literary journals and anthologies. She's a poetry educator with the Hudson River chapter of the National River of Words program. I love that River of Words. She uh, definitely blogs you. blogs at www.irenogarden.com. Welcome Irene. Thank you so kindly. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Me too and uh I sh- I share a love of words, but you're much better at them than I am. So I really appreciated <laughs> reading the two books of yours that I did read. Um, but I wanted to start by just quoting you because I think it sums up so much that I felt while reading your books. Uh, it's a it's a caption you have at the on the homepage of your website that says, "I love words. I love their sounds, their meanings, and their impact." I constantly explore ways to share such pleasures through writing poetry, essays, and theater pieces by using my trained voice and body as a performer and using my trained hands as a professional calligrapher. Each of these arts helps clarify and amplify meaning, which is my ultimate joy. I love that. It made me. It made me realize that words are kind of at the center of the way that I respond to a lot of things. I'm a musician. I write, uh-huh. uh, and but it's always been the lyrics. Like songs without lyrics are okay, but songs with great lyrics are better. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> and of course, I talk for a living on this radio show. So I've really been looking forward to having a conversation with you. Oh. Uh-huh.
2: Thank you, me too. Well, I think the work that you 're doing is so important, and the words that we use in situations like that are, are can be of ultimate comfort to uh, to people who have suffered a loss
1: That is so true, and also in uh in what we make the meaning we make of of uh losses later on uh, it was interesting because I read uh Glad to be Human First. Uh And um, it was so filled with um, passionate observation of the human experience, if I could say it that way. Oh, thank Um, you. Just just really evocative um, and visual language and joy. And then I read uh, Risking the Rapids, How My Wilderness Adventure Healed My Childhood. And uh, it's sort of, to me... You can tell me what you think about this, but it sort of felt as if then I understood where, glad to be human, some of where it came from,
2: uh, (laughs) which was delightful. But I don't know if if you think of it that way. Uh, You know, I think that what happens as we heal uh, is, is that we, we grow from that suffering into a wider appreciation of the world in some ways. Mm. And uh, so I think you're absolutely right about what that has, uh, what those experiences, the experiences that I had as a child, how they led me to a place of confidence and love for the world that we are still able to inhabit.
1: And of course, relevant to this the theme of this show, um, n- often hard won mm-hmm. that that sense of for me, very much so hard one a sense of real joy in the universe was not something I had as a child or mm-hmm. even even as a young adult, <laughs> you know um, uh-huh. life was pretty anxious and not so great for me Mm -hmm. and ironically having losses and hard times where I really had to kind of dive deep brought a lot more joy and I got the sense Irene that that might be somewhat true of you that um, difficulties caused you to sort of difficulties losses all those things that happen in life sort of caused you to observe more keenly and uh maybe fueled your writing to a degree.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Because I think that's part of the transformation that happens in suffering. Not that we should seek suffering, it's just that we seek what the lessons may be for us. And, and the more we can appreciate that, at least that was true for me, the the more we can move forward and create life events
1: with less suffering, I feel I, I I resonate very very much with that. um so let's talk a bit about your family, which uh, you know i've I've been married to two people that came from large families. I have
2: but <laughs> one brother
1: <laughs> but i have I have a bit of a fascination with large families.
2: Um, yes, we're 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 a breed that is uh, slowly going extinct, which is fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, uh, what I noticed with my my current wife, my first wife too, but not quite as much. Such a team they were, uh, they yes. or are all the siblings. You know, uh, it took me years to realize I had to run in as soon as I finished eating to hit the dishes because otherwise, they'd just take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the way that families are teams is, is quite different. Uh, you know, not everybody, it, it's not always about dishes, of course. But yes. I wondered how you think it impacted what you had to deal with after you grew up to be in such a large conglomeration of siblings.
2: Well, it's interesting because, of course, it's, a, it's the double-edged sword. When you are a member of a family that big, uh, there is also a lot of competition for attention, which is and if you have as as I did uh, my mother was uh, simply psychologically uh, not capable of of giving us the kind of love that most children assume they're going to get from a parent. Uh, My mother was, you know, if if we can use the word narcissist, we will use that word. Uh, But in, in her case, she was not able to be physically expressive with us. Uh, She was rather emotionally withdrawn and this was complicated by the alcohol that was flowing through the house. She was not, my, my family was not a like, throw-you-across-the-room kind of alcoholic family. It was just more of a uh, a, a kind of quiet, nightly martinis, martinis. Uh, and so uh, having a large family did help in some ways because you could at least, you know, nudge your brother with an elbow and say, Oh my gosh, did you see that? Or, you know, <laughs> I learned to mother my younger sister and my younger siblings uh, as my older siblings learned to sort of parent me. Uh, my father was, uh, was really quite a lovely man, but of course he was off working. Uh, he was a broadcaster himself. So I salute you, Cheryl. Um, <laughs> And uh, and just was not, of course, able to be there uh, all the time for us. So, so having the siblings in our family certainly, uh, I think, is a good thing in terms of teaching how to adjust to a wide variety of personalities uh, kind of prepares you for the world in a way, because, Mm -hmm. you know, we had some outgoing siblings, we had some very withdrawn siblings, everybody, you know, adapted in his or her own way. My, uh, My reaction to all of this was to overeat, as a child uh, and for you know quite a long time and to just compulsively overeat and then to have food and body image issues. And so, so that was a source of great suffering for me. Uh, and yet I found as I grew older, as one of the things that's an advantage to the family that I am part of, is we all do love words and we all do love to communicate. You know, we like to get get together, we like to talk about life and emotion and and all that. Not true in every family, but true. something that was very nourishing growing up. And as we became adults, you know, every family goes through, oh, I can't, oh, this person's driving me crazy, or you better tell that person for me, blah, blah, you know, you work out right. all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that when the family as a whole is facing a loss, uh, it it is a beautiful thing to be able to rely on one another. Um, when, when our mother passed, when our father passed, last last summer, my eldest sister died. And uh, I was sort of responsible for her, not sort of, I was uh, the responsible party for her. That was something that I could do for my siblings, even though she and I had not traditionally been close uh, over the 12 years of her dementia and that, you know, watching that person disappear. So losses, of course, happen in many different shapes. Uh, And yet to find that through this process, I could be giving a gift to my family of helping her through this. Um, You know, that that to me is the great mystery of life, that, that the loss always has love somewhere in it. Uh, And if we don't sense it at the moment, we can find it simply by that intention to keep going back and looking for it or to talking, talking with people about it or sharing it with someone or expressing it on a page or a painting or, you know, uh, we have many ways of helping ourselves through these, these dark times.
1: And I also got the impression um, reading your memoir about uh, going on the the rapids trip with your with several of your siblings. Yeah, there's a sense that you were going to. You're, there's an assumption you're going to come through for each other in certain ways. Like uh, you you'd get together to talk about how to take care of so and so. And one uh-huh. person might step up one time and another might step up another, uh, which isn't yes. always true in families. Sometimes there's an assumption that one particular person will take care of everybody. Yes. yes. <laughs> you know. But it doesn't seem as if that was true or is true in your family, that you're all kind of mutually responsible for each other.
2: We we especially as we've grown, we've pr- we try to be more sensitive to one another in that way, uh, and I think that we did. You know, some of the values that we were brought up with do help in that way. That that we we were brought up to value people and to value relationships. Um, in spite of the fact that ours might not have been shaped quite like other people's, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, it does make you more compassionate, it makes you more sensitive if you feel, you know, you're not being seen for a while, you try to be very careful in seeing those around you. For so sure. that that definitely did, did help.
1: It, it also does seem like you um, understood more, uh, maybe I'm projecting this because I feel this is true of me and my own mother. Uh, you understood more about how she might have become so closed off as you grew. Yes, yes. Uh, that, you know, she had basically lost her mother. Yes. Uh, not that she didn't get any mothering, but that is kind of an imprint if you have no way to, to cope with it, if you just kind of go on. Yes, um, yes. Do you feel that contributed?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, her, her mother essentially dropped her off with an aunt when she was about four and that was it, you know, so, and and people say, oh, well, that's how they did it in those days. When people were going West to California, you know, they would leave their children with various relatives and so forth. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think that helps us all, uh, those of us who are drawn to heal from our losses, Uh, certainly having a good therapist was a very important part of my journey. And uh, when I spoke with uh, my therapist about this, I said, well, you know, her mom abandoned her, uh, but, you know, that's okay because she she was going to come back and get her. And my therapist pointed out that any mother who really wanted to get a child back would find a way to do that. And so that really sunk in that you know, mm. mom kind of lost out on that personal, you know, she, her her aunt doted on her, but but you know it's hard if you think your own mom, it wasn't really all that much. Well, especially uh, you
1: know, I'm I'm in this position with clients a lot because I am a therapist in the rest yes. of my life, where um, just because it was a a sort of um, normal part in their particular situation, you know, like spanking, right? <laughs> or a- any of the things oh, yes. that are kind of thought of as as normal at a certain time, that doesn't mean they don't have impact. Yes, yes. Um, so I, it, it does seem, um, but, but for you, I think the impression that I got is that it, That the way that she was hurtled you um, much, much sooner, maybe, towards trying to make sense of it all.
2: Yes, yes. I think that that is very true for uh, not just for me, but for a lot of people. You know, Uh, my therapist used to say, you either have a hard time of it when you are a, a child and then a fairly you know, easy time of it as an adult or you have a great childhood and then you run into all kinds of problems. As <laughs> so I kind of feel like, well, it's not that I haven't had any problems, but, you know, the uh, the challenges of the early years were, were pretty hard. So,
1: Well, it's a delicate balance. Like that. <laughs> it's a delicate balance, too. I have to say, you know, being a mother uh Uh how how much suffering in childhood is actually helpful and how much Uh (laughs) is sometimes we're in control of the suffering but other times we have (laughs) something to say about how much we rescue the kids and stuff um but you weren't getting rescued that's for sure
2: Mm, that wasn't happening. <laughs> that wasn't happening. Although my father was there for us, so uh, you know, and he was definitely there for me, and he he saw me, uh, kind of got a kick out of me. So that was a, a very very important aspect of my, of my growing up.
1: I I resonated with that too, but also uh, you know most fathers and I think we're roughly the same generation. And mm-hmm. most fathers during that time, my parents would have been, been much, much better off the other way around uh, if my uh, mother had worked and my father had stayed home. Oh, wow. Um, and it took me a long time to figure that out, that, of course, that would have been extremely bizarre at that time. Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, this but it, it would have me. gone better uh, for, I think, yeah. for everyone. Yeah. Um, and so that our generation, where all the fifties, sixties, forties moms stayed home, yeah, didn't yeah. always work out perfectly. Let's go to a the break. Right, marriage, right, sure. right. Uh, let's go to a break and come back to it in a few minutes, listeners. You'll sure. find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, and you can join my email list there too. And my novel, An Ocean Between Them, has a link as well. To find Irene Ogarden, go to ireneogarden.com. Be back soon.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash voice America.
1: This is good grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month.
0: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
1: This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Irene O'Garden, an author, about two of her books, Glad to be Human and Risking the Rapids. Uh, I want to talk about the shape of Risking the Rapids because a, a metaphor that I um, frequently talk about with people is, is actually uh, river rafting. Oh, for heaven's sake. Um, Because, you know, there's the rocks you can get hung up on. You Mm -hmm. had some of that on your trip with your family. Um, There's knocking into the sides, right, and having to correct. And then there's those times where we're just kind of lazily laying back in the boat, you know. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Pretty much every state of human mind can be described (laughs) as part of a river rafting trip. And so Absolutely. it just it just seemed such a perfect uh, venue in which to kind of together uh, contemplate your family and and have an adventure together. But there was more going on than that. And I wonder if you were aware of that at the time, or did it kind of come to you afterwards that something had been healing inside of you on that trip?
2: Well, it's interesting, Cheryl, uh, I I was not, am not, you know, the risk uh, junkie that a lot of people are, you know, I, I have always believed that I just want to see my life pass before my eyes that one time when it's supposed to, you know, <laughs> I don't need to bungee jump, I don't need to, you know, so I've never been like, oh, totally drawn, let's do this, let's raft, all that. Uh but when this happened, and as you mentioned earlier, it was uh, it was a decision made by many members of the family after a brother of mine died unexpectedly uh, uh, one of the more troubled members of our family uh, and uh, he died at the age of sixty five and at his memorial, uh, we gathered with my uh, other siblings and my younger brother jim loves to go into the wilderness every year it is the high point of his year Uh, and the bob marshall wilderness in montana is the most remote place in the lower 48 states so Mm. he really gets away you have to ride a horse for 32 miles 11 hours uh and uh, uh just to get to the place where they put the boats in the water the rafts in the water, and then the the mules pack them in and then they go off and there you are in the middle of the wilderness. And although I love nature, I'd never really done anything quite like this. And there was a lot of First of all, I knew I was with people who knew what they were doing because my brother and his nephews go out all the time. I knew I was with people who loved me, so this is kind of the ideal way to do something like this. You know, (laughs) you're going to be as safe as you possibly can. However, the experience itself, uh, the river was much higher than usual and much swifter than usual due to a heavy snowfall the previous winter, and it it became a much diceier event than anybody was expecting. Um, So, so I, there was not, you know, I brought like a little, thing of watercolors, I was going to like kick back and my brother was going to teach me to fly fish and it was all going to be this float down the river. Well, it was not a float. It was like a survival. down the <laughs> Yeah. So uh, all the time that I thought we might have, were, I mean, there were some evenings after we'd finally made land again where, where we could heave a sigh of relief, but it, I was much more in the moment uh, than, uh, than I expected to be. And and that's as it should be, I guess, in the wilderness, you really have to pay attention to where you are to what you're doing. And so I agree with you that family life is like that, you really actually have to pay attention to what's going on around you, or you can get damaged, you know, and you can even get damaged. If you're paying attention, if you're you know, paying I was being attention, a like boy scratched down my arm, or a big twisted kid had a stick driven into his head. One of the younger members—it was like, oh my gosh! And <laughs> the goal is to live, right? <laughs> exactly, and to value being alive. And you can feel it coursing through your veins. Oh, I guess my body's trying to help me out here. It does want to live, uh, but it—it it is so. But it was more, as I say, it was more challenging than I thought but again, with the most caring and knowledgeable people uh, who were also being tested. Uh, So uh, a lot of what happened during the trip emotionally uh, in terms of the healing of childhood, there would be little um, little sparkles of that understanding during the journey. But it really wasn't until I got back home where I went, oh, you know, a lot of the, you know, I tackled a lot of fear head on. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I could really be my best for the people around me because the, am I ever going to do this again, by the way? No. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a fan, but it did uh, have its place in but your my life. My brother went right back this year to the very same place that we'd gotten. And this is after last year getting thrown from a horse. So he just, you know, he knows that. And, but, these kind of experiences are very like life because you just can't anticipate. Sometimes the rapids come at you so quickly. You have no idea. Sometimes a big hole pops in the raft and you don't know what's going to happen. Or so you watch someone, the hardest part for me was watching people I love get injured, you know, watching my brother being thrown from the raft and, and him being submerged and us going, Oh my God, where is he? Where is he? Mm, and so scary. Um, spoiler alert he, he he did survive to go back again but, um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's very um, it's very empowering to know that you can do that uh, but I think almost any profound risk will do that for anybody who's listening to this show you don't have to go into the wilderness to take a risk sometimes it's just having a conversation with someone that you're you know, you're a little afraid of having a conversation with that is a that's a risk, or it is, you know, deciding to commit something uh, to words or to paper or to express yourself artistically. These are risks, certainly, but every risk I think that we take enables us to take other risks, and only um, only gives us a, a greater sense of our own power, which is the thing that is driving us all the way through this life.
1: Mm. It reminds me of a part of a part of your book, uh, actually, I think it was glad to be human um about the spoon uh, oh yes, I, I think I think of marriage as as such an such an adventure, such a risk, actually uh-huh uh, I mean, I came to think of it more that way after living with someone who was ill for ten years, you know,
2: <laughs> it was a, a risky
1: process loving her, but totally worth yeah. it but um it, you know this this line in that I'll have you tell the story in a second but the the uh, end line was i realized we'd lived together long enough to wear down our spoons which is sort of a great metaphor too isn't it <laughs> yeah I, they they surround us these metaphors <laughs> they do if we if we make if we're, if we're inclined that direction yes <laughs> yes yes Do you want to Uh, tell that story story, about the spoon? I love
2: that story. Um, I was having a bowl of oatmeal one morning and I cut my lip and I'm like, how can I cut my lip in a bowl of oatmeal? It's like the most benign thing in the world. It's the healthiest thing in the world. What is going on here? And I realized it was because the lip of the spoon that I was using had grown so thin that it was sharp and it had cut me (laughs) And when I, rather than being all angry at the spoon, I went, "Well, what does this mean? How did it?" And then I went, "Oh my gosh, this spoon has gotten thin from thirty-five years of use, of daily use." And I thought that that's a really beautiful thing that that we can that we are together that long, Mm -hmm. that we've shared this daily life so long. And yes, sometimes uh, things things poke or <laughs> sometimes hurt sometimes it's whatever. sharp <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah sometimes it's sharp but essentially it's a spoon it's delivering us nourishment it is a it's a blessed thing so uh, i actually wrote that as a story um to be read at weddings <laughs> because uh-huh. i feel like it sounds like an old sampler a like, your spoons grow thin in your mouths. you know
1: it it does sound that way and um you know an accomplishment too, because at least for me, really committing to marriage, really being all in did take some healing mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, in my case kind of choosing people that weren't all in when I was young you know uh-huh. but sure. that's the that's the same equation for sure sure so accomplishing I think it's Rilke that says um." Marriage is the work of a lifetime for which all other work is but preparation. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I thought about that, that, that you had, even though it wasn't a major feature of that book, just that stick to of staying married to the same person and cultivating that life. Uh, it takes a lot sometimes, so, it does. <laughs> thanks for the spoon, I'm going to keep that.
2: <laughs>
1: um, you know, I was, I was also interested or touched that um, really it sounded as if the first major loss of your life was your father's death and you were still pretty young and you said uh, something along the lines of, now I was a half-orphan which uh-huh. uh, we don't tend to use that word, but it is accurate, isn't it? And yes. yeah. I imagine that that broke some things open, um, you know, because the first major thing, which happens to a lot of people in that age group, people don't talk about that, but it's, it's actually not that not uncommon at all to lose someone important in that period of life. Sure. But sure. we don't have the tools to handle it, maybe yet, mm-hmm. um, and I wondered if that was a particular just um, turning point for your life, or n- not quite yet.
2: Um, I, I would say it was a. It was, of course, a grievous loss. I I felt like the person who loved me more than anyone was no longer on earth. But, you know, the person who got my jokes, the person who, and and at the same time. Uh the way it happened was that we sort of got a couple warnings of that summer my father got ill and we had to take him to the hospital and then another thing happened and we had to, and so it's kind of like oh he's letting us know and he was only 59 i mean this is you know this is not this is not a long aged bit life we're talking about here yeah. um and and when it happened um I just was, I was certainly floored. Uh, at the time, uh, I was, uh, studying to become an actor and I was, you know, and I had plans to go to New York and all of that. And in a sense, it sort of propelled me even further that, you know, I wanted to go ahead with this, you know, dad said, do whatever it is you want to do. And I sort Mm -hmm. of wanted to do it kind of in his memory and, uh, so I didn't fall apart in the same way. I was I was definitely, uh, you know, wounded, if you will, by mm-hmm. it. Um, however, I had well, the sibling that I referred to earlier as the, our more, one of our more troubled siblings. It was a real break for him. It was a real psychological break. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because he'd had lots of arguments with my father over the Vietnam War. They had been very... That was really a dreadful period. And um, and when my father died, he went into kind of a catatonic state. And, you know, there were big questions about his mental capacity and his ability to function. So the trauma of my father's death was more what happened to my brother and how that affected uh, all of us, in a sense. I mean, well, there was the loss of would... this person, but... Yeah.
1: Right, that would sort of capture the attention, you know. Uh, I I didn't really grieve my father until my mother died because my mother needed a lot of care after my father died. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's sort of all of the focus went that direction and not mm-hmm. so much to uh, my own feelings about him dying. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and I'm someone who works in grief, you know. Uh, it's not yeah. that I wasn't happy to grieve him you know and willing yes, uh, yes. It just as um energetically um it made a real difference that she was living and needing needing support so yeah I could imagine yeah. it from that point of view both
2: your mother and your brother oh um, my bro- my mother was very in need as well yeah yeah
1: so, would you say that there was any sense of her Uh, this may be too big a word, but sort of softening, you know, sometimes in grief, people do soften a bit.
2: I think um, uh, eventually that happened, but not before alcohol played a terrible, you know, set of tricks on her (laughs) for (laughs) many years. Uh, And then her health finally broke down a bit and the doctor said, you have to quit drinking and, So that did make a difference, but she was medicating for so long and so intently that it was difficult. I think for her to come, you know, I mean, it's not that she wasn't grieving. She was in her way, but she wasn't, she wasn't doing it in a way that would help her forward. Uh, She was not capable of that at that Mm -hmm. time, but then when her, you know, she fell and had a hit her head and, had to learn to walk again and all that stuff. And they said, you can't drink. So she became uh, a more, uh, more, she softened more. And then uh, her eventual um, Alzheimer's softened her remarkably. Um, Isn't that, uh, you know, not, people tend not to talk about that, but that does happen pretty, pretty often. Uh, you know, it's interesting, Cheryl, because both my mother and my sister, the eldest sister that I had who died last summer, Um, both of them had Alzheimer's and I decided with and with the help of my younger sister as well that we were going to look at this not as a well however it's pictured culturally but we were going to try and be more creative about the way we looked at it and and sort of say look we don't really know what this is we don't know what they're seeing when they look at us they could be seeing blobs of color I don't know (laughs) and you know if mom doesn't know what time it is, who cares? If mom, you know, you go into, uh, supporting them spontaneously as best you can. That's another, this is a real Zen training is to be with someone with dementia, uh, because you really Amen must that. be yes. present and you must be flexible and you must not expect anything of them, you know, just to be there to serve. And, um, and what happened with her. Certainly C- both of them I,
1: had their I, oh sure. Could, could we break and then cut oh, Of don't course wanna, I don't want to make this short. It's it's uh, a really important this this way that creativity with Alzheimer's can really lead to a beautiful experience instead of, you know, the terrible experience many people have. So let's talk about that when we get sure. back. Listeners, you can go to weatherandgrief.com, my my uh, website or the Good Grief Host page. And to find Irene O'Garden, you can go to ireneogarden.com. It's O-G-A-R-D-E-N.com. Back after the break. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and
2: give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn.
1: This is Good Grief host, Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month.
2: Open my heart. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Irene O'Garden about her books, Glad to be Human and Risking the Rapids. And uh, I cut you off a bit, Irene, in the middle of us talking about um, your mother and your sister and the way that the rest of you chose to respond to their Alzheimer's, which... I just think it's such an important message that I didn't want to shorten it uh, because it sounds as if you took a very creative and present approach. Um, And ironically, I sort of feel that pairs with having an observing mind, being able to not react as much, you know, which, (laughs) but, but then to be able to really lend yourself to whatever's
2: going on at the moment. Could you talk some more about that? Oh, oh, sure. Absolutely. I, it's, it's simply that when you are dealing with someone who has Alzheimer's or interacting with someone or sharing a meal with someone or whatever, when you are with them, uh, it is entirely unpredictable. It's like the rapids we were talking about earlier. You have no idea where this person is going, and and you really have to let go of your expectations of them or your habitual regard of them as someone who is going to you know care what day it is or um, or know what the appropriate thing to do with a plate is you know Mm. there it it's a it's a whole spectrum of behavior and you know i'm not saying that my both my sister and my mother didn't have their very hard and bleak and difficult uh, uh times uh but their times of fury and suspicion and, you know, oh, there's this person's stolen everything I have or weeping or all that. That seemed to be, for me, a phase that they went through. They didn't dwell there forever. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there were, you know, some months or even as much as a year of where there would be more challenging, but you could really find often a way to, to help guide them toward Thoughts that might be uh, more uh, relaxing for them, or more so, but you could, you're thinking on your feet, and uh, <laughs> for sure, and also at the same time, uh, so this is an ongoing loss. This is you're watching, you're experiencing loss not as the sudden cutoff of a life, but as the oh man. She doesn't know this about me anymore. Or she doesn't even recognize. Oh, how do you like that? Okay, can I be a benevolent presence? What can I do? Can I bring her some lilacs? Because I know she can still smell. You know, so you, you find that there is a deeper source within us that kind of helps guide us through uh, a way to, to be with someone with love, especially so long as that intention to love is there.
1: It, it, it reminded me, reading about your experience with that, and now hearing you talk even more. Uh, at one point, uh, my first wife was on a medication that completely eliminated her short-term memory. Oof. And um, what I found interesting about it for me is that we were interacting, and I wouldn't be remembered, and I knew it. Oh. and it's a real change in how you see yourself in relationship that i realized we we depend on each other to to carry each other that way one of my friends uh-huh. calls it tracking and in order uh-huh. to do what you did you had to let go of that which is a which is a helpful practice i think not that we would want to do it all the time but mm-hmm. just to be right there and not to expect anything of the future ourselves, Uh, you remember what happened though, you know? (laughs) So it's not a mutual loss of connection to that event. It's a singular loss. I Mm -hmm. find that really, I found it fascinating then and I'm still, um, I got used to it, Uh, you know? Uh Stopped taking the medication. But then when she was dying and was very demented, uh, it wasn 't as disturbing, I got used to it,
2: yes, yes, <laughs> is that part of it too? kind of yeah, absolutely you know it 's interesting, Cheryl, as you 're talking now, I realize when you when we think about grief and loss, you know now many of us are looking around at many things, many activities in our own lives, uh apart from whatever personal losses we may have sustained. Uh, We're watching a great and participating in the loss of a very great deal of things, a lot of being able to be with one another, uh, being able to uh, travel or being able to uh, celebrate in traditional ways. And and we are in a, a place where we have to use that present mind and say, I don't know where this is going. But I will, I'm going to do my level best to be present for it and to be as helpful as I can be uh, to all the energies I interact with, uh, because this is we're we're all living through uh, a, a great deal of social international uh, loss at the moment. So. Yes
1: with covid absolutely yeah
2: yeah and
1: i've noticed that um many people i talk with i talk with a lot of people as you can imagine Uh about covid um and um some people um i noticed were waiting for it to be over Uh and other people were figuring out how to live within the parameters and mm-hmm. the people that were waiting for it to be over got very miserable very quickly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I would say. Because when you don't know what will happen and you don't know what the timeline is, just waiting is very empty.
2: Uh huh.
1: Um, so, I think there's something here about how do we live within whatever circumstances. Not that I don't... Yes object to the circumstances, of course, but
2: yeah. um, still, isn't that the, isn't that the job? We just have to be present. I mean, we all remember when we thought, oh, this is probably going to be like two weeks, right? Yes, I, <laughs> I, mean, I, remember, I remember that vaguely. March, <laughs> I think we all thought it was good. Okay, this will be done in about two weeks. And uh, we realized no uh, more is being called for from us. And I think the way that we get through this is to continue to look for the meaning in it, to continue mm-hmm. to create meaning for ourselves and for those around us and for total strangers. Uh, to know, to trust that this does have meaning as as horrible as many aspects of it are. Uh, to ask, well, all right, if I were if, if this were a dream I was having, what would this mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, I always find that a helpful way to look at things uh, and and to come up with some answers for ourselves.
1: I feel it would be a perfect moment for you to share that part of your book. Speaking of, you know, um, accepting things as they are and making meaning, uh, could you read the part of your book uh, that you call Breaking
2: Just So? Oh, sure, sure. It's It's a very brief little essay. It's called Broken... Just so. Broken just so, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Sad events have happened recently, not so much to me directly, but in the lives of people close to me. Business disappointments, unexpected hospitalizations, and the untimely passing of a young mother here in our community darkened many hearts. What do we make of such pains, such losses... A treasured vase came to mind. It belonged to my mother and is an object whose graceful fanning fluted form I have ever loved. Earlier this year, it broke. It did not shatter, but it will never hold water and a live bouquet again. Yet I couldn't bring myself to throw it out. I kept it in my studio with the broken places turned from view. This morning, I was inspired to take a little action and refrain from cursing the darkness, so to speak. Because it had broken just so, I could thread a small bulb on a simple fixture precisely through the break. Had the break not been just so, this lovely glowing lamp would not exist. But neither would it exist had the break never happened. Let us hope that in those times, life breaks our hearts. They break just so to let our light shine forth.
1: What shone from that story for me too is uh, it would have been unlikely for you to immediately say, oh, no, never mind. I can put a light in here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> that that you have to leave room for the loss and then sometimes um something beautifully creative occurs later on is that how it felt to you when it happened
2: oh I was like oh but I also trusted the part of me that said don't throw it out Hmm. but what am I going to use it for is I can't put any flowers in it and then I just said just don't throw it out and then all of a sudden I went, oh, I know what I could do. <laughs> so it's important not to throw away our losses the minute they arrive. Mm. You know, it's not everybody. I, mean, I have broken vases that I have not made lamps out of and they have had to you know, go the way. Not everything, uh, everything does that. But trust the voice within you that says, I'm not through with this yet. Let me, let me explore this a little bit more. You know, can I, where, where can I put the light?
1: Yes, and and um, if we were going to make you know long term uh, pronouncements about it, um, something different may happen later on. I've I've been thinking a lot because it's almost twenty five years since my wife died. Unbelievably wow. enough, wow. Um, in October it'll be twenty twenty five years. Mm. Wow and i i realized that the lights i've put in that vase have changed over time you know uh, that it continues to evol- that experience continues to evolve and just in the in the course of your books i could see how losses in your life and experiences in your life continue to evolve if we had another another hour we could talk about travel you know, and the oh. way that that evolves things and and um, leads to gains and losses. I, I love the way you talk about travel, uh, uh-huh. especially in terms of it being a movement. But, um, you know, who knows? It may have, uh, I don't know, pearls coming out of it someday. Or, you know, who knows what <laughs> might happen with the vase if it still has energy. <laughs> I love that image. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's been very delightful to spend this time with you and to read your books. And, um, you know, may we all get the most we can out of these things we experience losses and other things as well. Thanks for being with me.
2: Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's been a delight for me to be here.
1: Oh, I'm glad. Next week, I'll have Reese Palmer a musician, to talk about how losing her mother as a child has affected her music. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.